Audi. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. Thank you very much to you all, yes you, for making the podcast number two in iTunes UK Places and Travel again this week. I think that's about the fifth time we've been up to number two. Second only to BBC Earth's podcast, uh, who I'm never going to be able to beat considering the huge promo power of the BBC. So number two is pretty damn good as far as I'm concerned and I'm very grateful to each and every one of you for listening, recommending, reviewing, viewing on iTunes, subscribing, talking about, thinking about whatever you're doing, please keep doing it. I am very grateful. Today's guest is another brilliant one for you and here she is. Many of us dream of taking great journeys and sometimes all it takes is that first step and just to keep going and going. After writing her book Around India in 80 Trains, Monisha Rajesh decided to tackle the whole world in 80 trains and left London on a journey that took in 45,000 miles across Europe, Russia, Mongolia, China, Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, Japan, Canada and America. She has some wonderful, inspirational, entertaining stories for you in a conversation that I know you're going to love. Monisha Rajesh on the Big Travel Podcast. So you're the author of Around India in 80 Trains and the recently released Around the World in 80 Trains. That is a lot of trains. It's a lot of trains. It's a lot of trains and in hindsight, I'm not sure how I actually did it when I come to think of uh, all that travel. Uh, the first book was a little bit more than 80 trains. I think I probably did about 100. Um, but that's only because I initially started out not including return journeys because I thought it was cheating and then realised I'd be on a hell of a lot of trains if I didn't. So, um, but this one I actually did make sure it was exactly 80 trains. It was a very definite choice because having the 80 trains gave me, it gave me a real goal. I knew exactly how many I had to take. I knew exactly how I could divide them up around the world. Um, and it, it literally kept me on track with my travels. I knew, oh, I see I knew what where you I needed. Did there. I see what you did. <laughs> knew where I needed to be. What was the inspiration? Obviously, around the world in eighty days. But it, why, why it trains? It was so. I mean, that that just gave me a nice format. But the trains, trains. It's oddly, I was never a big train fan. It was not something that I ever thought I would specialise in. But with the first book, I initially I wanted to travel around India for four to five months, just because. I'd, I'd only spent two years living there when I was about nine. I'd grown up in the UK and been born here, but my parents had always intended on moving back. And we spent two years there. It didn't work out well, and we came back. And after that, I never really went back. I had a bit of a sort of bitter taste about living in India. So I tended to avoid it. And then after about 20 years of us having left, I just thought, you know, it can't be that bad. People go so often. I have great stories from friends who've been, you know, backpacking for a year around India. 
So I decided to give it a shot and just go myself on my own. And I knew that being a writer, I couldn't possibly go over and not write anything while I was there. And I was looking at an article about how India's domestic airlines could cover 80 cities. And I pulled up the map and had a look and it was, it was phenomenal how far you could get around the country. But underneath this map was this amazing network and it just looked like embroidery. And I looked at the key and I saw that it was the railways. And I thought, oh, this might be quite fun because I'm not a huge fan of air travel. And I thought, right, let me see if I can do these 80 cities via the railways. And then 80 cities just became 80 trains. So really, it was just a method to get around the country. And then it became the reason for my travel. And yeah, trains ended up becoming sort of the lifeblood of what I wrote about. India, I find, is fantastic. And the sights and the sounds and the smells. And it's also yeah. quite hard work, isn't it? It is hard work. It really is hard work. Um, and I think for me, because I'm sort of Indian blood it was probably easier than it would have been for somebody else because people didn't instantly know that I wasn't Indian born and bred but they would obviously gauge that oh, there was something in there and because you're dressed but, differently well and yeah and, and I did you know I, I did I, I looked different my clothes were different my accent was different and but then it gave something to people to, to to chat to me about and they would always approach me and ask me where are you from what are you doing how on earth is an Indian girl traveling on these trains by herself? Because that was something that I really didn't see. I didn't see women traveling alone very much, certainly not on long distance journeys or overnight trains. But people were lovely. They were really kind to me. And as soon as they found out what I was doing, families would always invite me into their carriages and they would always share their food with me and they'd always swap numbers. And at the end of the journey, say, please let us know that you've arrived okay at your hotel and you know get in touch if you need anything. And they were very sweet. But the other upside to sort of being an insider and an outsider, was that I was probably able to write about the country in a way that somebody who was just a Westerner wouldn't, because I could pick up on dialect. I understood things that you just, you know, you grow up learning as a kid, just cultural nuances. Uh, and it was nice to have that sort of inroad into people's lives and to cultural understanding that I think a Westerner just wouldn't have. Did you feel quite vulnerable travelling on your own? Or is there ever any times you felt afraid? Um, well, I had a photographer friend go with me for... He was meant to come from all of the trip, actually, but we had differences like you do with travelling partners. So we split up along the way and then rejoined at the end. But it was good to have that time on my own. I had a good couple of months by myself. And... I really felt quite safe. I genuinely did. I found people to be really kind, really helpful. But equally, I was quite cautious about where I travelled and when, which you shouldn't have to be, but at the same time, you just have to be realistic about where you are and what you're doing. Because you read about India having this... Yeah. Particularly at the moment, you read about a growing rape culture. Yeah, you do. And I think, you know, it's not to say that it's the, it's the only country where this happens, but there is a very strong prevalence of it. And you have to be mindful where you are. And if it meant, you know, dressing slightly differently, not going out after dark and staying with big groups, then, then I did it because it was just, I have to protect myself. And, and I was fine. I really was OK. It's probably in a way that people read about London having a growing knife crime, but it's yeah. not something that people see on a day-to-day no, -day exactly. basis. Luckily, you know, it's the stuff that's reported, yeah. isn't it? And I've certainly always felt very safe yeah, in India. Although yeah, people, likewise. I remember filming in the centre of Bangalore. I was doing a travel programme for Sky and... Everyone crowded around me, all it, men. You yeah. know, there's about 100 men crowding around me, and I'm thinking, okay, this is a bit weird now. I'm I doing did a piece to camera. Yeah, I did have that a lot on train platforms if I was just sitting on top of my rucksack by myself and they'd suddenly look around and find a huge 
pack of people. I think invariably people were just curious more than anything and wanted to know what was going on and I was clearly doing something that was a bit out of the ordinary but you know I did have my moments of feeling a little bit uncomfortable but I would just move carriages or just you know turn around and walk the other way. What's which the most standout moment in terms of views? What was the, what was the best in view that you had in India? Oh a lot there were a lot. Um, I think Rajasthan one of the I think the most beautiful area of Rajasthan for me is actually Jaisalmer up in the north, which not many people really get to. They tend to stay around the Golden Triangle with Jaipur, Udaipur and Jodhpur. But I made it up to Jaisalmer because it's one of the oldest working forts. And when you wake in the morning and you stand on the edge of the city and you can look down and through the ramparts, it's phenomenal because there are so many Jain temples inside and you can actually see everyone going to pray in the morning. And the sun coming up on that sort of red stone is just a most fantastic view but that's why India's just got so much substance to it because you've got all the deserts and you've got the old palaces and that sort of that lovely dreamy Raj kind of era that people think of but then you also have some incredible you know coconut groves and Kerala so green and it's got backwaters but then equally you've got these incredible cities like Mumbai which is just I think one of my favorite places it's so electrifying when you walk around any time of day it's crazy um, it's everything it's really crazy uh, but you've got everything there you've got you've got such varieties and then up in Ladakh you've got you know snow and glaciers and it's great it's got everything that you could want so you came back and then decided to do around the world in well I had I, I had a few years in between um, because I found as much as I adored the traveling and writing the book and everything that came around it it's very isolating writing a book you have to do it by yourself in peace no one else around and I just spent 11 months sitting at my desk alone at home I'm a people person and I really needed to be around people and have company after that so I spent three weeks three weeks three years working at the week magazine <laughs> flew by the week magazine yeah I spent three years there I loved it it was a fantastic job but I had itchy feet again and I just kept thinking about doing another train book and where could I do it and I realized that I couldn't really replicate what I'd done in India in any other one specific country and that was largely because of language and I think China was probably the only place where I could probably have done it but I don't speak the language and I think I would have struggled to really get sort of under the skin of people the way I could in India so I had a chat with my agent and he just said why don't you just go and do what you suggested before and I I had talked about going around the world and it just seemed so daunting and just a ridiculous concept and impossible that I just shelved it and then we just started talking about it more and more and I looked into it and I realized that it was it was doable I just had to you know work with what I had and figure out how I could make it work and I did and and then I set off it must be thrilling to go from London to Asia overland it's absolutely incredible it's in fact I would suggest to anyone who has a bit of time on their hands at any stage in your life if you can do London you can stay overland all the way down to I think Ho Chi Minh City is probably the furthest you can get without leaving the railways that's I mean I've been to Ho Chi Minh City and that is when you think about how far away that is you can actually stay on a train all the way and I think I remember the morning we woke up on the Trans-Mongolian pulling into Beijing and just looking up and thinking that sun has followed us for the last kind of couple of months and we've been overland and I'd watched the landscape changing in quite mesmerizing ways but so gradual 
that you realise actually when you fly from somewhere like London where the scenery is you know pretty standard you know what you're expecting to Beijing where it's completely different and there's incredible mountains and rivers and lakes and actually it doesn't take a lot to get you to that and it's when you see the bit you've missed in between you realise how gradual it is and actually we are really quite close we're quite linked we're more attached than you realize and when you stay over land you get to see all of that and you see i think the loveliest bit was the the sort of right in the middle bit where you're almost like the no man's land and that sort of boundary of neither west nor east and through siberia and through central asia that's where i really felt it and you could even see it you could see it in people's faces you could see how people who had blonde hair and blue eyes suddenly started to morph into having you know slightly greener eyes and then they became a bit darker and the hair became a bit blacker and you'd find people with black hair and blue eyes and then suddenly everyone had black hair and brown eyes and you see how the changes are so small bit by bit but when you see it from f by flying it's so stark and I and even with food food started to change really gradually across the Trans-Mongolian you know suddenly packets of noodles appeared and things got a little bit spicier and drinks started to change slightly and people drank more tea and then you realize that you're you're, you're actually not that different from other people. It must make you see the world in a different way. Do you yeah, think I did. travel in the way, to travel has the power, I think, like that, to help con combat prejudice and yeah. racism? Because when you go over land, you just see that we're all the same. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's what was so striking to me when we stayed overland all the way from, especially from somewhere like London to China. And you think, you look at it on the map, it just looks like it's the other side of the world. There were so many more similarities than there were differences in the way people did things. Just your people's routines, the, you know, the kind of food that we eat and things that we drink first thing in the morning, the interactions with people, are they the same? They're, they're really not that different. This um, is a really rubbish thing to say, but it's actually almost disappointing in a way, because sometimes you want to go somewhere and you want it to feel so really different. completely different yeah. and foreign, and actually you realise that we're all just the same, it's well, just a slightly do you, different... Do you know what, towards the end, the last few months of the trip, I started to see that more and more, because you know most of us go away to escape travel for people is an escape it's to find something different it's to do something new and i found myself bit by bit actually relating to things more and actually finding the similarities in people rather than the differences and there were so many more there really were so you went overland to from london to where was your so my, so my first stop was a eurostar from st pancras um london to paris and then i spent about three to four weeks traveling around europe and then went across to latvia and from Latvia took an overnight train to Moscow and that's where the sort of big journey started. So the Trans-Mongolian was from Moscow to Irkutsk and that was about four and a half days non-stop in quite excruciating heat, which I wasn't really expecting, but it was in June. So yeah, Siberia was not really what I'd expected. It was, it was you so You see hot. Siberia as this sort of cold, and cold and icy, you? you know, yeah. billowing winds and mm. it was nothing of the sort. It was absolutely boiling hot. And I spent a couple of days in Lake Baikal, which was just phenomenal, uh, which was a nice way to break up the trip because the Trans-Mongolian, it's a long journey, but you can, you can split it up and do two or three days off here and there to make it more manageable. Tell me about the lake. I don't know anything so about it. So Lake Baikal is, it's the oldest and deepest freshwater lake in the world. It was caused by a huge rift. Um, in the Earth's crust, and apparently it may split again one day. <laughs> so I hope that it wasn't when we were there. But it's phenomenal. It's like, I think UNESCO have actually called it the Galapagos of the sort of Central Asia or Galapagos of the East or something, because it's it's got the kind of flora and fauna that's just endemic to that region and you will never find anything anywhere else. And it was absolutely stunning. It was Green Lake for just thousands of miles. and 
freshwater seals just turning somersaults while you're paddling at the edge and there's um, an old section of railway that one of the older sections of the Trans-Mongolian still runs around that so we took that for a couple of hours just to break up the journey but it was beautiful and they've got the most phenomenal hiking trails around around and the Altai mountains circle it. And uh, are people are people living by the lake? Yeah, they do. They do. There's amazing old wooden huts, and people still people still live there. People still farm out there. Lots and lots of fishing, ice fishing, all sorts. So, yeah, it's it it really does make you feel like now that part of the world really made me feel like we were away. We were we were away from everything, and you needed to take ferries and all kinds of boats to to actually get out to the islands and. Yes, it was it was quite something else. I love it that you had a break from the train by taking a train by journey. By taking a train yeah. journey somewhere else. <laughs> but yeah, then we hopped back on uh, from Siberia to uh, to Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. A couple of days there and then on to Beijing for another two two nights on the train again. But yeah, pulling into pulling into Beijing that morning and I mean first waking up, waking up and wondering where we were having gone through the Gobi Desert. Uh, overnight you wake and suddenly you look out the window and there's just masses of mountains the houses are shaped differently they've got these beautiful little roofs that curl up at the bottom like little dainty hems on skirts and then you just see people squatting in the rivers with the conical hats on and big baggy trousers and you know immediately where you are just by those tiny images and within half a day you've pulled into Beijing and it's all changed again it's already changed you can see when you know you know when you're coming into a station when you've got these wires start hanging and then graffiti turns up on the walls it's that very ubiquitous sign of coming into a big city again at concrete and then the big high rises start and suddenly all the tracks start gelling to the side and you know it's over um, but it was an incredible feeling to step out onto the platform and think we're in China we've done it we actually did this we've stayed overland all the way and we got here and it's completely doable sounds amazing really I would was. love to do that really you know was. I've been to these places but I've flown and you just miss so much but like a lot of people your time poor it's time yeah it really is the time so and that money as well yeah and the money too although the Trans-Mongolian's not you can travel in the domestic train which Russians do which we did which is not it wasn't particularly expensive especially because people only do it one way <laughs> you're not going to take the train and go back the other way again and most people we met on board were doing that they'd come out and then fly back to wherever they'd come from so where um, did you go from China so from China uh, went down all the way through the south of China to Hanoi and then took the reunification express all the way down the country to Saigon City. Why is it called the reunification so, express? Because in the 1970s when the country was reunified during the war it was it was literally just called that. It was the, I think the reunification was in 1974. So it's just named after that. And the train it's not one specific train it's a service but there are three or four that do that route. So and it's Again, it's another phenomenal journey that takes you from the very tip of the country to the very bottom. I've done that trip again all by plane. The down the coast. And did you stop in Hoi An? We did. So we broke up the journey again, stopped in Da Nang, just to go and have a look at the beaches where the Americans had landed and the museums and stayed in Hoi An for a few days and then got back on the train. And that's one of the most beautiful Saigon. towns I've been to. I love it's, it. Yeah, it's absolutely stunning. Describe it for people who don't so, know. So Hoi An, it, it almost looks like a Disney town. It's everything that you picture of every cliche you can imagine of sweet little umbrellas hanging around and tiny alleys and lakes with twinkly fairy lights on the boats and people wearing silk and big bowls of noodles, people riding bikes with vegetables hanging off the handlebars. It's that wonderful twee 
quaint everything that you just want to have in a little package and it, it's almost like it's been tied up in a little bone left there for people it's one of the loveliest towns it really is but that was the lovely bit about being on trains because when you fly you do miss all of those little bits in between your sense of kind of being in between is so strong when you're on planes because you hop on you're in the air you have no idea where you are you look out of the window sometimes and it's just cloud and this kind of brightly lit grid below you but you have no idea where you are but with trains you can at every point you can look out and get a feeling for where you are and you know what's in between all the time and you've always got you know cities emerging or villages or towns or schools or something that gives you a sort of sense of place of you know where you're traveling to and if we'd been on a plane we would have never thought about these places and the nice bit was we could just get off if we wanted to um, trains were so cheap that if you spotted somewhere and thought this looks quite fun you could just get off the train and get back on a couple of days later for very little cost and that's what i loved about it i never felt restricted we could just come and go as we pleased and and if you again if you got somewhere and you thought mm, this is not really for me you could just get back on and keep going i read a lovely description that you'd written about the the way a, a train delay that you had on the way to cross over the bridge over the river Kwai. Yeah. <laughs> tell us about that so the the death railway is it's still a segment that runs in thailand from bangkok to namtok now the the death railway is now known as that was the section of railway that the Japanese built during... Well, they didn't build it, but they used allied prisoners of war to build this segment, which was to enable them to actually invade India. And obviously it never came off uh, because of the bomb. But that section was built over just under a year using British, Australian, um, and also native prisoners of war from the area and you can still ride that train and it's a very somber but very beautiful journey that takes you over the sort of elusive bridge on the River Kwai which actually isn't the River Kwai but when the book was written Pierre Boulle got the name wrong. Oh seriously I so didn't actually, know that. I haven't been to so the, the bridge. Um, the Thais actually very carefully changed it and they've it's actually, I think it's actually the Yali River. But, but they they've just, changed the name of so the river they changed to the name to call it Little Kwai uh -huh. and the Big Kwai, so that when tourists came, they could say, "Yes, this is the Kwai River. This actually is it." Very smart, very shrewd. Um, but you can still ride across it, and it's a three and a half hour journey from Bangkok up to Namtok. And for every sleeper laid, one prisoner died. So it's you, and you're very conscious of this the whole time when you're riding up there. So on the way back, when we've been up to Namtok, where there's there's a really beautiful museum um, and an area called the Hellfire Pass which still has one of the cuttings that you can walk along, which the prisoners worked on. And you can hear their commentary as you're walking along it. And you can sort of visualise where they had to work in these absolutely excruciating circumstances. And there are still sleepers laid out that they put down. And it's called Hellfire Pass because they said by firelight at night time, it looked like what they imagined hell would be with emaciated soldiers standing around with these tiny, tiny little hammers cutting away while the Japanese were whipping them and throwing rocks from above and just really brutalizing them um, so when we'd finished this tour and we got back on the train to come back from Namtok um, the train broke down and we had absolutely no idea when it was going to come on again and of course people said oh it's going now and then nothing happened and they said oh we'll roll the engine on to the next station and then that never happened and then we were all back <laughs> all the way we'd come and it took us an extra eight hours, I think, to get back to Bangkok. And we were so worried that we would never get to see the bridge on the River Kwai. And we'd miss it by, you know, evening. The sun would have come down. We missed everything. And in the end, 
it ended up being the most lovely journey because there was a monk on board who just sat there absolutely motionless the whole time. He was the only person who didn't look phased by this, even the tiniest bit. And everyone else was flapping around and getting stressed and making phone calls. And people kept coming with, mo I mean, they're very clever around there. Within about five minutes of us breaking down, this lady had wheeled over a stall and she started frying pancakes. So obviously everyone jumped off and had some. And then someone else got um, a sort of mock taxi to come and pick people up and charge people per head to ride in the back. But we decided that we would just stay and see what happened. And I just kept watching this monk thinking, this isn't bothering him even the tiniest bit. And I realised that there was just no point in being bothered because we weren't going to go anywhere, anywhere faster. I couldn't do anything about it. And I may as well just sit there and enjoy it and enjoy the food, enjoy the view, enjoy the rain a bit. And eventually we'd get back. And we did, and the train and the train made it. it we got over the bridge on the River Kwai. It was a, actually a lovely time of night where the sun was just going down. So we got to see everything that we wanted to see. And it was a really special moment when we finally actually got there. And we sort of clattered onto the bridge and loads of tourists had gathered waiting for it because the train only runs twice a day. So they all gather in a huge mass to wait for it to come. It always felt like a celebrity when we sort of clattered on and it slowly made its way across. Um, and it was a really beautiful moment in the end. And it just made me see that even though things are delayed, there's no point when you're traveling being bothered by it because really in the grand scheme of things, did you really have to be anywhere that much faster? And you miss out on all the other things that you can absorb during that time. That's the key, isn't it? it? You don't have, hopefully, you don't have a schedule, you don't have no. a flight to catch, you're not going to miss a connection. It's just no. go with the flow. And even if you do, I think, you know, if, there's, if it's out of your hands completely, you may as well make the most of it. I mean, just if you've got an extra night somewhere, go to another part of town, try and find a different restaurant, just wander around somewhere else you haven't been or go back to a book, just do something different with it. And Does it, it change you as a person? Do you bring that attitude home to London where people you get frustrated with slow walkers in the street oh, or you people you standing try. on the wrong side when of the you're away, You always think you're going to bring back this new person that you've become and within about 10 minutes of being back, you think, oh, hurry up and move. But no, I did. I think, and I, I, especially having been away for eight months, when I got back, I did just look around at people on the train thinking... It's not that hard to just chat to people. And I found that if you did, people would just chat back to you. I mean, I go up to see my parents quite a bit. Um, they're only in Birmingham. It's an hour and 20 on the train from Euston. But I do invariably end up chatting to people. And they can be quite responsive. And it really does make everything so different. And, and it, was, it really was quite a stark contrast coming back from you know, traveling on these Asia trains where everyone literally clambers across everybody else, you share each other's food, you, you basically help yourself to everything else that someone else has got. But you come back on the tube and it's the most stark, alienating, very, very cold atmosphere. And I do just wonder why we can't replicate that or at least move somewhere closer towards that sense of community and you know, being together, because we are all doing the same thing. We're all going the same way. We're all aiming to get to the same goal in the end. And I think we do in times of, not necessarily crisis, crisis but also, yeah. <laughs> as well as in times of crisis, we do in times, like if there's a delay, not an eight-hour, an eight-hour one would be pretty you're, hideous you, you on the tube, but you do always bond over something that's gone do, wrong. Yeah, so everyone makes friends. <laughs> everyone starts to turse and then everyone goes, oh, yeah. you know, what's going on now? And I talk to everyone, I have to say, but maybe that is yeah. because I'm a traveller and I just enjoy 
conversation. Yeah. I was at. I know you were talking about Stanford's travel um, because you, have you been nominated for an award or no? That's last year's. That was last yeah. year's. I'll I was be, at an I'll event the other night the and I was standing there awkwardly in the travel shop in a beautiful travel. Oh, shop. is that Stanford's new? Yes, the, the the new opening of the bookshop. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I was standing there thinking, oh, I don't know anyone. I don't know what to do. And I just thought, no, just go and speak to someone. So I said, hi. I don't know anyone. And I made made about three or four new friends yeah. and contacts just from sort of swallowing yeah, that sort totally. of natural reticence to sort of open up to people definitely so the people you met along the way who stands out from people you met along the way oh um oh i think one one really stands out as soon as you asked i just had image of her in my head immediately um it was a nun a tibetan nun on the train from urumqi in northwest china to turfan which is probably a couple of hours away she just walked past the compartment when I was just sitting on my laptop uh, typing up some notes and she appeared babbling away in the doorway. I had absolutely no idea what she was saying, but she was beaming from ear to ear holding this flask and she just kept chattering and she kept pointing at me and chattering and chattering and chattering. And my husband said, what on earth is she saying? I said, I just don't know. And this friend who was, had a photographer friend travel with us for the last section of the journey he said, I don't know what she's saying, but she looks really happy. And she just kept sort of slapping her thighs and laughing. <laughs> and so my husband actually went next door and found a girl who could speak English and brought her back. And so she translated and she said, the nun wants to know if you're Indian. And I said, yes, I am. And she was, oh, it was like all her Christmases that come at once. And I said, why is she so excited? And she said, well, because the Dalai Lama was helped by Indians and she is forever grateful to Indian people for having helped him. And she's never met the Dalai Lama and she's never been to India and she can't. But this is the closest she'll ever get to it. And I just thought, oh, that's the sweetest thing I've ever heard. And I didn't want to disappoint her and say I don't actually live in India. I'm English. But she came and sat down next to us and we'd actually just been to Lhasa a few days before that. And my photographer had a whole load of pictures of the Putala Palace and of the Drepung Monastery on his computer. And she sat between us. And she just kept talking and talking and talking and she talked to the screen and she was just overwhelmed by all these photographs. And she spent an hour in our compartment, none of us speaking the same language, and yet we somehow managed to bond and just develop this fantastic relationship with her. And she came and sat with us in the dining car afterwards. Again, none of us understood each other, and yet we did. We still understood what we were doing. She completely got to grips with what our journey was by going through the pictures and seeing my notes and tickets. Um, And when she was leaving, she ran off to her compartment, she took all of us with her, and she took out three little red strings from her bag that had tiny gold Buddhas on the end, and she tied each one round our wrists, and she gave us little sweets, and she sort of closed each one into our palms, and she just, the way she touched us on our hands and on our shoulders before she left was so, it was just really enriching, and after she'd gone, our compartment just felt like someone had just heated it up, and it was so bright and she was so joyous that it just spread for the whole journey. All three of us were just in such a good mood after that. And it was just, it was incredible to us how somebody with just such amazing humour and just a lovely kind of zest for life could influence us in that way. And when I see pictures of her after that, I just, I just always think of how you can just bring that kind of warmth and spirit to other people. Um, without losing anything from yourself. And I think that was that was the most stark thing about it. Um, also, she she took out her iPhone and added me on WeChat, which I just thought was fantastic. And I didn't know how to do it. 
and because WeChat they all use in China rather than WhatsApp because it's banned. It's exactly the same, but it's actually more developed and better. So we'd been using that, and she took out my phone, and I said, I don't know how to add you because her script was all in Chinese, and she took my phone from me. Scanned the QR code and handed it back to me, <laughs> and I just thought, oh my gosh, if a Tibetan nun is showing me how to scan QR codes and hand it back, this world is very different from what I'd imagined it to be. What was she wearing? She was wearing t- Tibetan robes. She was wearing burgundy robes um, and beads, and she had a shaved head. So yeah, we were pretty set. Yeah, she was definitely a yeah a nun. And when she gathered all her nun friends on the platform had come to greet her. After that, for quite a long time, used to send little emoticons of Buddhas exploding in golden light. After I came back home, it was it was lovely. It was really sweet, and、I、we met so many people like this. All religious people were like that. That's what to me religion is about. Is like I'm、joy. not religious, but spreading joy and love and just、yeah. doing good. It's almost like you don't have to be religious to feel that you were blessed that、yes. day. Almost, I know. I suppose we better find out. Geographically, where you went after Asia? Did、um, you come back? When you say around the world, did you just go around the world? So after after Vietnam, I couldn't take trains across Cambodia because there weren't any. Oh really? I've been、there、to Cambodia.、None. I can't remember. There were no trains, trains at、no. all, and in fact, I didn't know that before we reached there. In fact, now they are in operation. They started running about a year after we were there. They have two single lines, which unfortunately were sort of co-opted by Pol Pot. And used a bit like the Nazis did to take people out into the killing fields, and they just ran into disrepair. I mean, they never connected Vietnam and Thailand; they were just in the middle. But there had been plans to do both, and I think it's still a possibility that they could. So in the end, I had to take buses rather than actually taking the train to connect to Thailand, and then from Thailand, managed to get all the way down through Malaysia to Singapore. And then back up again to the death railway. But unfortunately, I had to fly then from Bangkok to Japan. There's no way around it. It had to be done.、I、spent three weeks in Japan, and then from Japan flew to Vancouver, and then spent just over five weeks travelling across Canada and then around the U.S. on Amtrak for a month. I had a month's rail pass, and then from Vancouver back to China. But then from China we went to North Korea for ten days, and that was probably one of the highlights of the trip. I think. What was North Korea like? Oh, lots of different feelings when I think of North Korea. Fascinating, intriguing, very sad. But I think as a journalist, it was probably the most fascinating country that I had ever seen, and probably will ever see. I think because you read so much about North Korea, and you always wonder how much of it is true. And then when we actually arrived there, I mean, it's very difficult to know when you are there what's true and what's not because so much is held back from you, and you're told that Pyongyang is like a showcase city where everything's presented to tourists. But then you think tourists aren't here every single day, and do they just run this city like it's almost、Disney、like it's like <laughs> the Truman Show, yes, where yeah, yeah. you know everything just carries on as normal, and you wonder how much is for your benefit and how much isn't. But it's a working normal city, and you wonder. Is it like this when we've gone? Do they switch off the lights and shut the hotel down? Or and, and a lot of people will tell you that, but you don't know. And I found it difficult before I went not to read much about it. And I I went through a couple of books just so that I wasn't completely you know uneducated before arriving. But I tried not to read too much because I didn't want to project my own feelings about things. And I found this. I mean, when you land, it's it sounds very trite to say it's like being on a different planet, but it does feel very very. Alien, just people's faces, their expressions, their body language. There's no warmth. There's the the greeting that you would normally get in any airport from people taking your passport, people looking at your luggage, is just isn't there. 
they, there's no eye contact, there's no smiling. It's very official and it's unnerving because it's very unusual to find that kind of detachment between people. And it's just it's just not there. And the only people that you can really interact with are the guides that they assign you when you arrive. And we had five for the group. There were 15 of us. And we were on a 10-day train tour, which went from Pyongyang all the way around the country. It was a chartered train. And that's why we went, because it was a train that actually went out of Pyongyang, which is unusual for people to do. Normally, Pyongyang tends to be the only place people visit for three to four days. But this was a good 10 days. And we went right down the coast through Chongjin and Hamhong, to places that have only just recently opened up to tourists. I was going to say, is it hard to get in? Is it quite difficult to have a visa? uh, Actually, no. And that was something I didn't know. Yeah, I would have thought it'd be quite difficult to to be allowed in. I think there are three tour companies based in Beijing, and we used a British one called Corio Tours. And they take people in, they have about 100 trips a year. And you just just send off your application and they organise your visa for you. And I think with North Korea, tourism is actually probably one of the most important sources of income really and it was something I wrestled with a little bit before I went because I thought this is money that's going straight into the pockets of a dictator but I think you can't restrict where you travel based on that because there are very many countries that we all visit that have got lots of things that they're not doing right Um, and Mm. we're certainly not doing things right as well and in fact one of the visitors there a guy in our group just said you know what about Saudis? He said Americans and the Saudis and the Brits all sell them arms and you sit back and let them do it. And he said they're just as culpable for human rights abuses as the North Koreans are. And he said, I, I have absolutely no qualms about visiting. And I think I realised then that there's no point in alienating a country that's even being alienated anyway by its own people. Do you think the people were not friendly and not engaging because they were fearful or they just didn't have that customer service? Well, 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 it's probably a bit of both. And I think that's what you spend all those days around people wondering. Is it that they've been told terrible stuff about Americans and foreigners? Because they do. They certainly fed. The propaganda they fed about Americans and Japanese is quite something if you start talking to them about it. And they refer to Americans as American imperialists mm-hmm. in every single conversation. No, really, just very. <laughs> they just call them that. That's just their title. It's American imperialists. Funny. And they will tell you about how the Americans are bullies, and you know the Japan, Japanese are the worst people in the world. And it was it was quite tough because there was a Japanese chap and an American on our trip. An, Amer- um, an American imperialist. An American imperialist who was actually an, a, a veteran. He was a very sweet man called Boston Bobby. So it was quite hard for some of the people who were on our trip because there was a, there was a lot of propaganda against America and Japan it was quite brutal scenes in museums and crows pecking the eyes of dead soldiers and things and these are this is on show all the time it's very normal over there so it was quite it was quite tough to see but then you do wonder whether it's just because they've been told these things or whether they feel they have to say it in front of other North Koreans and when we were there I realized that a lot of the propaganda I'd read in the Western press was just awful you know, a lot of tourists come back and sell their stories to, you know, the Mail or the Sun, and they're so exaggerated, and I didn't feel unsafe there, not even once, I really didn't, because when you arrive, you're with a British company, you're given five guides who stay with you every single day, there's no sense of danger at all, in fact... Would you they... be allowed to go off-piste out of your tour group? So, or... you no, you can't just get up and wander off breakfast in the morning, you very much stay within your group, you 
go by coach from one place to the other. You wouldn't really wander off and do anything. And and, and it doesn't feel restrictive because you already know this when you get there and your itinerary is so packed that you don't feel bored and you don't feel like you want to go off and do something. I mean, it's every everyone has a human instinct to want to go nose around somewhere. And we, you know, wandering around the hotel, you'd go and check out, you know, the basement where there's a bowling alley and there's, you know, pool tables and there are just normal people playing pool next to you and of course you want to stare at them and think do you know anything about your dictator do you know what's actually happening in your country but even if they did there's not very much they can do because they've got to live their lives they have to just they get can't on go with anywhere it. can they well they can't they i mean the defectors are the only people who can actually tell anyone what's really happening but even then they sometimes defectors do embellish their stories so you don't know unless you get six or seven people telling you the same thing and it's hard because you just you don't want to put them in an awkward position either and be impolite and start asking them things that you know are going to get them into trouble if they're heard by other people talking about it and you it's just it's just ill-mannered to a degree actually and i think if you're going to visit somewhere like north korea you have to you have to abide by their rules. But what's next for you? Have you got any other journey plans? I know you've had a little girl, so oh, that gosh, kind yeah, of... Yeah, I've got a little girl. Another one coming in June, so that will... It clips it will... your wings, believe me, it really does. I know, and I really don't want to hear that. Because I know, because I... you think you're going to be that person, but Who can, it doesn't. You know, but sling it... them in a bag and yeah. take them with you. And there, there, those people <laughs> are out there. I mean, I travel like every six weeks, but only European How old journeys at the moment. Six and four. But I've travelled since they were born. Since you know, they, they were, were born, on a plane yeah. like when they were 10 weeks old and every six weeks since then. But well, this is just plan. European <laughs> journeys. I haven't, you know, slung them into a backpack and gone round Asia, for example. So I, I don't know what I'm going to do next. I have to really think this through because I do not want to stop because travel is it is what I do I'm going to try and find a way around it I think that's the aim at least to see if there's something that I can do because I don't want to stop great well I'm going to ask you my last question which is always about music because to me music and travel go hand in hand because you often find yourself music and listening to music when you're traveling and on the train if you had to choose one song that reminded you of a place and time a memorable place and time on your journey journeys possibly what would that be oh wow um it's not so much music as tv shows because we spent so long watching game of thrones <laughs> when we were on the trans mongolian i like to think that a you were lot. like technology free but that just doesn't happen these days well, you're I, sitting you there know, watching game of I thrones had, i had all the these intentions to just read books and i admit i did take a kindle this time because when i was in india i just you know how you pass all those amazing bookshops and stalls that have all those naughty pirated copies? Mm-hmm. I would always pick up books. And you just have such a variety over there that you don't get here. And I, my backpack was rammed with them. And in the end, I ended up posting back books every month. So I took my Kindle this time with every intention to read everything. And I never read a thing that was loaded onto it. Because every time you read, you miss everything that's going on outside the windows. Oh, yeah, that's so true. So I would read about half a page. But and so do you if you've got Games of Thrones on your phone. So, the game, so Game of Thrones read on a laptop because, just because the border crossings were five or six hours and you're just standing, you're just parked in a shed for five hours while they lift the train up and they move the whole bottom out. That was actually quite an interesting thing of the journey that I didn't know. Between China and Mongolia, the gauge is different on the track and it's part of an overhang of Chinese rule they don't want to change it because they're scared of the Chinese taking it to their advantage and possible invasion so they have this unbelievable process of it's almost up to six hours when you reach the border before you enter China you get put into this big shed and jacked up and you don't even realize it's happening because it's so gentle but you suddenly look out of the window and realize that you're about 12 feet in the air 
and you look across and there's another train with all the passengers in bed and eating noodles and they're all the same level as you and there's just guys in hard hats below you and they jack this thing up with an electric jack and then they pull the whole chassis out and put a brand new one in the wheels come off and they put the entire wow. thing and then they lower you and sort of shunt the engines back and forth it takes about five hours and then you can cross into China because otherwise the trains can't go in. It's it's quite something. Again, that sounds fascinating. It's amazing. And I'm not an engineering geek or train geek. I, this kind of stuff just wouldn't interest me if someone told me. But actually being in the train when they were doing it and the speed with which they did it and the ease was just phenomenal. I've never seen anything like it. So no music. Great game, game of, of Thrones, Thrones for five hours. After we spent the first hour watching the, the, the train wheels being changed. <laughs> yes, we had Game of Thrones to keep us company. But music... Oh, do you know what? No specific artist, but when we were traveling through the deep south in the US, I did end up listening to quite a lot of jazz because we went to New Orleans and my parents actually came out to join us there because I said to them, pick, they wanted to come at some point in the journey. I said, look, here's the map. These are the pins. These are the cities we're going to be in and these are the dates. And they had that up in their study. So they knew where we were at any given time. And my dad just said, I want to come to New Orleans. He said, I've dreamt about this place since I was a kid. I have visions of little men playing trombone in bars and I want to come. And it really was that. It was absolutely everything that he'd hoped it would be. And we'd spent many hours sitting in old bars, drinking mint juleps and listening to trombone. And I ended up listening to quite a lot of it after we left. And we took the Sunset Limited train from New Orleans to L.A., which was a 48-hour journey straight after. And it was a lovely accompaniment to travelling along the deep south. That sounds brilliant. That is a journey I would love to do myself as well. That's oh, an amazing trip. It really is. I mean, we didn't even get onto your American train journeys, but we'll have to do that another time. Thank you so much for coming on the Big Travel Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you again, Monisha, for that inspirational insight into train travel around the world. And thank you very much for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. Some very fabulous people have said yes to coming on the podcast. I just need to tie them down, literally if I have to. So watch this space. There'll be a new episode every Tuesday. Tuesday.